We're going to read from verse 1 to verse 7. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Our glorious Father in heaven, we thank you so much for allowing us to be here this morning, for calling us together and calling us to yourself and opening our eyes to see you, Lord. And thank you for the awesome privilege it is to be able to worship you, to lay our request before you and to hear from you, Lord. And as we now give our attention to the scriptures and the words of Jesus, to the work of Jesus, Father, I just pray that by your Holy Spirit you would speak through me, speak to us all through Jesus Christ, your Son, and do a work, Lord, this day in our hearts through the preaching of your word and glorify your name and help us to understand and to see the things, Lord, that you want us to see in this passage. And Father, we commit this time to you. Thank you for your grace. If anyone here, Lord, is struggling with condemnation, Lord, would you point them this, this morning to the fountain that cleanses and gives peace? And Lord, if anyone here is puffed up with pride, I pray, Lord, that you would help us, Lord, to in humility hear your word and to see that you are above all and that we are nothing apart from you and that you have given us all by grace and there's nothing to boast in. And Lord, we love you. We love what you do and who you are. Take this time in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. What is the significance of the healing of the man born blind? Why is this story recorded in the Gospel of John? It's important to ask that question because as I've pointed out before as we've been going through the Gospel of John, it's not the intention of the Apostle John to give us a broad overview of the life and the ministry of Jesus. It's not his intention to follow the events in Jesus' ministry, step by step, give us kind of the cliff notes, tell us basically what happened. That's not the Apostle John's intention with his gospel. For that, we may turn to the invaluable contribution of the synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But John, however, is not writing his gospel to give us an overview of the ministry of Jesus, but he's writing his gospel to give us the essence of the ministry of Jesus. He's intently focused 
on the true meaning and the theological significance of the works and the words of Jesus, right? That, I mean, he omits a lot of stuff, doesn't he? There's, 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 I think I mentioned in the introduction to this series, most of the material in the Gospel of John is unique to the Gospel of John. Matthew, Mark, and Luke is all very similar as they give us the, the broad story. But John focuses exclusively on his purpose, which is to show us the true meaning and the essence. What is it all about? Not just what happened, right? It's not enough just to know what happened. You can go to a, a, a class at the university and they'll tell you just basically what happened, right? They'll tell you when Jesus came, the dates, what he did, where he was, Galilee, Jerusalem, he was crucified by Pontius Pilate, all of that. And John wants us to know more than just what happened, but what does it mean? And for that purpose, John selects all of his material very carefully. And according to the very last verse of the Gospel of John, John says, you know, if I were to write everything Jesus did, it would take more books than the world could contain. John is very selective in his material. To put this into perspective, this story, the Gospel of Luke has 24 chapters and it records 17 healings or exorcisms in 24 chapters. And you've got to remember, some of those chapters include the crucifixion narrative. So out of 24 chapters, he includes 17 healings or exorcisms. In the Gospel of Mark, there's 16 chapters, including the crucifixion narrative. And Mark includes 13 healings and exorcisms. Now, in the Gospel of John, we have 21 chapters... And z how many exorcisms? Zero. No exorcisms in the Gospel of John. Not one. See, he's not giving us an overview of what Jesus did. And he records three healings. I'm not including his raising of Lazarus from the dead. If you want to, that'd be four. But healings of people that are ill or sick, John only records three out of 21 chapters. Now, why no exorcisms? Here's what I think. For the Apostle John, and for all the Apostles, but this is John's purpose, Jesus' real encounter and engagement with evil was not in casting out demons, casting demons out of deranged people, though that was an encounter with evil, no doubt. But John understands that Jesus' real engagement with evil was his clash with the respectable Jewish orthodoxy of his day. To John, he's saying, that's the real evil. If, if, don't miss that. You know, when you think evil and darkness and devil, don't just think exorcism. True? Right? Don't just think some person that's demon-possessed with no clothes on, you know, cutting themselves. And yeah, that's evil. No, John's not denying that's evil. But he's saying, you're going to miss the point of what evil really is. And when when the Son of God came into the world to destroy the works of the devil, when the Son of God came into the world to encounter evil, to drive out darkness, it was so much more than just casting out demons. And you're going to miss it if you don't catch what, this, what it really is. And John's showing us what it really is. Evil is respectable. It looks respectable. Like, looks good, looks clean, looks righteous, looks holy, looks religious. But it's a lie. And that's what Jesus was dealing with ultimately the Jewish orthodoxy in his day, 
He was dealing with the lovers of darkness and, as he says in John 8, the children of the devil. Of the three healings in the Gospel of John, we've already seen in the first healing, the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4. John records the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4 in order to contrast Jewish unbelief with Samaritan receptivity to the gospel. That's the purpose of that healing. It's not just to say, hey, look, Jesus healed the nobleman's son. It's to show the contrast there between that city of the Samaritans that accepted him and this nobleman, this Jewish man coming to Jesus. And Jesus says, you people, unless you see signs and wonders, you won't believe. The second miracle recorded, a healing miracle in the Gospel of John, uh, we saw is the healing of the lame man in chapter 5. And once again, John does not just record that to say Jesus healed the lame man, but John records that to show Jesus' equality with the Father as the Lord of the Sabbath, right? My Father's always working and so am I. That's why that miracle is recorded. And so we see the few healing miracles John chose to include serve his central purpose and carry important theological significance, which brings us back to the original question. What's the significance of the healing of the man born blind? Why is it here in the Gospel of John? I hope by the end of this sermon that we'll all have a fresh perspective on this healing miracle and we'll be able to give a clear answer to that question. Why did John include this miracle in his narrative. If, if at this point your understanding of this miracle is just, wow, Jesus healed a blind man. That's really cool. He's a powerful guy. You've missed it. Even though that's true, you've missed the point. This morning I'll uh, divide my sermon up into two sections. First of all, we'll just work through the text and analyze the healing itself. We'll just analyze what happened. And then I'll close Uh, by looking at the essential significance of the healing of the man born blind. So the healing itself. Let's look together once again at verse 1. Verse 1 starts with these words, as he passed by. Now some commentators connect this story with what immediately uh, precedes. And you'll remember in chapter 8, we're in the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus is having a long dialogue with the Jewish people and this dialogue ends with Jesus proclaiming himself to be before Abraham. Before Abraham was, I am, in verse 58 of chapter 8. And they don't like that. In verse 59, they pick up stones to throw at Jesus. But it says here, Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. So some commentators connect these two stories immediately. As Jesus is leaving the temple... They're wanting to stone him. He leaves, and as he's passing by, he sees a man born blind. You see how they would connect that uh, chronologically. But most commentators are skeptical of doing that. They're skeptical of connecting these stories chronologically like that, and they note that the story in chapter 9 actually runs right into chapter 10. If you look at the end of chapter 9, Jesus is speaking, and he just continues to speak into chapter 10. And in chapter 10, John clearly locates this time three months later at, uh, at the festival of Hanukkah. It's not even the Feast of Tabernacles anymore. So most commentators think, no, it's probably not wise to connect chapter 8 and chapter 9 uh, 
we're starting a new thing here. We're starting a new story, and I think that it's best not to link them chronologically. This is another time, and Jesus is simply passing by at another time, and he sees a man that's born blind. However, although these, this story is not chronologically connected with what goes before, it is thematically connected with what goes before because in chapter 8, he's talking about him being the light of the world, right? In chapter 8, that's what the whole dialogue is about. I am the light of the world. Chapter 8, verse 12, spawning this great argument. And here in chapter 9, in verse 5, you see Jesus hasn't left this idea at all. While I am, the light of, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So they certainly are connected in their theme. As he passed by, let's just reflect on something here. It's wonderful, isn't it? I think, and I think you'll agree with me, what awesome, life-changing things can happen out of what seem like circumstances of happenstance. Would you agree? Wonderful things can happen out of what seem like circumstances of happenstance. Jesus happens to be passing by. Is he, did he go that way for the blind man? It doesn't seem like it. He just is passing by. He's going somewhere else. But he encounters this man, and this man's life completely changes. He gets up in the morning. This man doesn't think his life is going to be changed. Doesn't think he'll be going to bed that night seeing, right? It seems like an ordinary day. Nobody prepped him. Nobody said, hey, you know, your, day, your life's going to change today because you're going to encounter Jesus. He's coming your way. It just seems like circumstances of happenstance. And yet, wonderful things come about it, come, come out of that. And I think that one of the lessons we repeatedly see throughout the Bible is you don't need to chase the extraordinary. The extraordinary comes to you. True? Do you think the extraordinary comes to you, or do you think it'll, you'll only ever encounter the extraordinary if you chase it? What do you think? We see in the life of Moses, the extraordinary comes to him. He didn't go and chase that. In fact, when he tried to chase the extraordinary, it failed miserably, right? And he ended up in the desert for 40 years until God encountered him there. Did Gideon chase the extraordinary? No, he was just hiding away in a wine press, and God came to him, right? Did David chase the extraordinary? No, he was just getting up in the morning, doing his chores, right? Going out in the, the fields with the sheep, and all of a sudden he gets anointed as king of Israel. He didn't chase that. And we could just go on and on and on. The extraordinary comes to us, brothers and sisters, and it usually comes to us in the context of the ordinary, which makes it even more extraordinary. There are people who travel, travel all over the world chasing the supernatural and chasing extraordinary experiences with God. Have you ever met somebody like that? Right? God's moving in that city. Got to go. Right? <laughs> so poor, too bad for all the other cities, right? <laughs> and they're, they're constantly asking, where is God? Where is God working? Where is God moving? Where is things happening? And the ironic thing in my experience, I found that these same people who chase the supernatural and chase extraordinary experiences are the very ones who tend to miss the most extraordinary thing of all, right? 
the most supernatural thing of all, and that is that a person is righteous before God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's the most extraordinary and supernatural thing of all, true? And yet these people tend to miss that. When someone, I've found, when someone is um, excessively interested in miracles or extraordinary things, it's, it's, it's often the case that they don't understand righteousness through faith in Christ. That's extraordinary. That's walking on water, right? That you get up in the morning and you believe, me, sinful me, wicked, nasty, vile, irreverent, um, plain me, is a righteous, blameless child of God, joint heir with Christ. Amen. That's supernatural and radical and extraordinary. Amen. And that's something that we get to encounter every day if we would just realize it and be amazed at every day and within our humdrum, within the mundane, right? And I think it's the mundane and the humdrum that make it so extraordinary. Me, the guy who just goes to work, you know, the guy who just come home, the guy who yells at his wife, the guy, me, there's nothing extraordinary about me, but that's what makes it so amazing, isn't it? And that's what gives God all the glory, and that's what manifests the true power of God. It really isn't about how amazing you are, it's about how amazing God is. The question, the, the extraordinary comes to us, it has come to us if we're Christians, and the question is, do we realize it? Do we rejoice in it? So here we see an example of that. He's just passing by, and he sees a man that's been blind from birth. How did they know he was blind from birth? Well, maybe he was a well-known beggar. It says he was a beggar in verse 8. Uh, so maybe he was a, you know, a fixture in Jerusalem. People had seen him. They knew he was blind from birth. Or maybe he was at, new from out of town, and he had a sign, like, you know, beggars we see with signs. And he says, B blind from birth, your pity appreciated, right? Maybe they saw a sign. But whatever the case, his condition evoked their pity and evoked a question. Blindness is a terrible infirmity. I can forget that sometimes because I read about blindness in the Bible and blind people often function quite well. But I want you to imagine not being able to see. I mean, we take our sight for granted. I know I do often. But imagine not being able to see. No light, no colors, no visuals. You don't get to see the face of your loved one. You don't get to see your favorite TV show. You don't get to see that beautiful uh, bouquet of flowers. You don't get to see the mountains. On top of that, being blind, not only are you um, unable to see, but your movement is precarious as well. You don't know what's ahead of you. And so you stumble along, you grope, you bump into things, and you fall. I've also read that it's often difficult for a blind person to sleep because um, our bodies, our, our sleep is regulated by the light and the darkness as well. And so when you don't know if it's dark out, you don't know if it's light out, your body can get confused about when it's time to sleep. And so a lot of uh, blind people have struggled just falling asleep as well. It's a, it's a terrible infirmity to have. 
And so in verse 2, the disciples see this condition, this awful condition, and he had it from birth. And so they ask their rabbi or their teacher for an answer. And they say, Rabbi, we have a question about this man. And they assume there's only two options, right? Who sinned? The question assumes somebody sinned here. Who was it? This man or his parents? Was he being punished for the sins of his parents, which can happen? If the child continues in that sin? Or, a common idea among the Jews is that even the unborn can sin in the womb. And they point to Jacob and Esau in the womb, and they say, look, look at Jacob and Esau in the womb, fighting. See, they sinned in the womb. Actually, Esau sinned in the womb, and that's why God chose Jacob and not Esau. So they try to identify God's election of Jacob in the fact that Esau was a bad guy. And actually, Paul says in Romans chapter 9, verse 11, that's absolutely not the case. In Romans 9, verse 11, Paul tells us that when Jacob and Esau were in the womb, they hadn't done even good or evil, and God chose Jacob so that his purpose and election would stand, not of him who works, but of God who calls. They're like Job's friends here, aren't they? Pronounced suffering always is a direct result of sin, of somebody's sin. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever entertained that kind of an idea? We might say, yeah, suffering in general, kind of like the average suffering we all experience, I can understand that's not you know, directly related to my sin or somebody else's. That's just because of the fall. But pronounce something, suffering. Something really bad happens to you or somebody you know, and what do you think? Oh, what did I do, right? Or, oh, that's because I did that thing. Or, man, that only happens to people who deserve it right? Pronounced suffering is always a direct result of sin. The book of Job explodes that idea, right? The book of Job says those friends were wrong in thinking that. And Jesus' answer to the disciples also completely explodes that idea, and yet that's still a very persistent idea. You can read that in the book of Job. You can read Jesus say this, and it's still hard to root that out of our self-righteous hearts. In verse 3, Jesus repudiates their two options and he gives them a novel idea, something they'd never thought about. This man's pronounced suffering had nothing to do with his parents' sins or his sins. It was not about their sins at all. It was about God's purpose and God's glory. The commentator William Hendrickson says it well when he says, for the backward look of the disciples, he substitutes the forward look. They had asked, how did this come to be? He answers, it happened with a purpose. So their thinking is not, what's the purpose of this, but how this, ha this shouldn't have happened unless you know, somebody must have blown it. And he's saying, no, this happened that God's works might be displayed. Now, Jesus is not saying here that there's no connection, brothers and sisters, between sin and suffering. He's not saying here in this verse there's no connection between sin and suffering. According to the Bible, in fact, all suffering is the result of sin. Would there be any suffering in this world if humanity had not sinned and fallen away from God in the Garden of Eden? No. 
and when God restores the earth in righteousness, will there be any suffering for the redeemed in the future? No. Why? Because the redeemed are now righteous and restored in that righteousness in a perfect world where there is no suffering on account of sin. So the Bible definitely teaches there's a connection between sin and suffering. This verse is often inappropriately used to argue against that idea. You know, anytime someone, a Christian mentions all suffering is on account of sin, they'll point to the book of Job or they'll point to Jesus here and they'll say, hey, you're wrong. Jesus said suffering and sin have nothing to do with each other. That's not what he's saying here. While there is a connection between sin and suffering, what Jesus is saying here is that there's absolutely, in this case, no connection between their sin and this suffering. There's a connection between sin and suffering in general. In this case, there's no connection between sin and suffering in the specific. Suffering can be for specific sins we see in the Bible, but it's not necessarily so, and it often is not so. It can be for some other purpose of God. And John Calvin writes, we cannot always put our finger on the causes of the afflictions which men endure. And that's important for us to remember for our own lives and as we see suffering in our world. I hope you don't just assume that pronounced suffering is on account of some specific sin because Jesus says no. And this is uh, relevant as we consider the shootings in Orlando. You know, a lot of people are saying, oh, it's because they were homosexuals, right? That they suffered one of the worst shootings of American history. It's because God's judging them for their homosexuality. Maybe, but we don't know for sure, right? We don't know for sure. And I think of Luke chapter 13, when a tower fell on some people, and they said, well, those guys must have been really bad sinners for that to happen. And Jesus says, no, don't think it's because there were sinners than you that that happened. But unless you repent, you'll perish too. So we don't know. But one thing is for sure, and I'd like to encourage us with this thought this morning. There is no such thing as purposeless suffering. Do you believe that? There is no such thing as purposeless suffering. Whether it is on account of sin and judgment or not, it's all for the glory of God. There's no such thing as purposeless suffering. Now in verse 4, as Jesus is thinking about the purpose of this man's blindness in order to display the works of God, Jesus is reminded of the purpose of his own life and the purpose of his coming. That is to work the works of God and to, to be about his father's business. The purpose of Jesus' life, and he tells us here the purpose of the life of every Christian as well, every child of God, because he says here, we must work the works of God. Not just I, as some translations say, but it should correctly be rendered we. We should be about the father's business and accomplishing the work of the Lord. That is why we live. That is why we're here why we're still here as Christians and not just translated away like Enoch. Because as long as we live, we have work to do, the work of the Lord to display his glory and to proclaim his word. I believe this is what Jesus means when he says night is coming when no one can work. Most commentators think, and I agree, that uh, the night here refers to his departure from 
earthly life or our departure from earthly life. And you can look in the next verse. He says, while I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And I think Jesus is alluding to some ideas in the Old Testament. Psalm 104.23 tells us, Man goes forth to his work and to his labor until evening. So we learn a lesson in daily life. We, we get up in the morning, the sun rises, we go to work, and then when the sun goes down, we come home, or at least most of us do, and we rest. The work is over. And Jesus, I think, is applying that image to our earthly lives. There's a time to work and there's a time to rest. There's a time to be busy, and there's a time when all of our labor is coming to an end because the day will come to an end. In the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon says a similar thing, but it's much more morbid. He says, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no work or thought or knowledge or wisdom in the grave to which you are going. And he's kind of morbid. I think he it's a very depressing look at life, but there's still an element of truth in it. He's saying, you know, do what you're going to do now because there's coming a time when that opportunity will be gone. And I believe this is what Jesus is pointing to. There's this time for us now to work. Jesus' time is limited and so is ours. It's good to remember that, isn't it? I forget that. In verse 5 and 6, Jesus, he says here, While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And look how verse 6 begins. When he had said this, he spat on the ground. So this is an extremely important detail. Jesus turns to heal this man after just saying, While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And his turning to heal this man of his blindness is connected with his saying, I am the light of the world. And so we see that this miracle is not just about healing this man. It's about performing a sign that points to Jesus and his true mission that tells us about who Jesus is. This miracle is a sign that tells us about who he is and what he's doing. And it's loaded with significance. You ever thought about why Jesus healed the man this way? It's kind of strange. He spits on the ground, makes clay, puts it on his eyes, tells him to go wash in the pool of Siloam. Now, Jesus didn't have to do that, right? He's healed many people without those kind of means. What do you think? Why did he do that? Various explanations are given. Some people say it's, you know, to show that in order to be healed, we have to exercise faith. So Jesus doesn't just heal him. He says, you know, Go and wash in the pool of Siloam and he's going to test to see if this guy believes, thus teaching us that we need faith in order to be healed or faith in order to uh, be uh, touched by Jesus, restored by Jesus. There's truth to that. Some say it's an echo of creation. Man was made from the dust, the clay. And so if our whole selves were made from clay, well, Jesus just needs a little clay to fix the man's eyes. That's how some people take this just kind of an allusion to Genesis chapter 2. Others say he's deliberately disregarding the Pharisees because as we're going to see in the rest of the chapter, he healed the man on the Sabbath. And it's a big no-no on the Sabbath to make anything. And he he made clay. And so some think Jesus is deliberately disregarding them and saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. I'll make clay if I want to make clay. I think though in all these explanations, they miss the most important and the simple point 
of why he did what he did. And here's what I believe is the answer. The simple point and emphasis of this text, of this miracle, and of Jesus' action is that Jesus wanted the man to wash in the pool of Siloam. That's the emphasis, I think, of this miracle. Not, not necessarily the smearing of the eyes, but the emphasis is washing in the pool of Siloam. And he wanted the man to wash there, and so he puts the mud on his eyes and gives him a reason to go and wash in the pool of Siloam. I think if he had just said, go wash in the pool of Siloam, he might have said, I don't need to wash, or what do I need to wash for? But he puts the mud on his eyes, indicating something is obstructing your vision. Something's not right with you. Something's wrong with you. There's a foreign problem on you, foreign element on your eyes. You need to get it off. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And specifically in that pool. He doesn't say, go wash in that jar over there. You see that jar full of water? Go wash. You know that other pool that's a little closer? Go wash. But he wants him to go specifically to that pool and to wash. And so that's why I think he puts the mud upon his eyes, to send him there. John goes out of his way to tell us what the meaning of this word salome is. It means sent. The pool is the point, I believe, of the story. And we'll get to that in just a moment. The man goes and washes, it says in verse 7, and he comes back seeing. What a splendid day for that man. A joyous miracle. No more darkness. No more stumbling around. No more begging. Now there's light. Now there's color. Now there's visuals. As a full-grown man, He's, his life has completely changed because Jesus healed his eyes. Before we go to the, our last section here this morning, our closing section, I'd like to just make one more comment. I did a little research about people who have been born blind and who came to see later on in their life. And I found out about a man named Pierre Paul Thomas, who only three years ago in 2013, at the age of 68, re received his sight again. And he was born blind. He, lived in, he lives in Montreal, Canada. This is an extremely rare thing to happen, for someone to be born blind and then get their sight at that age, 68. And it's an interesting story, actually. The doctors had diagnosed him in a particular way, and they had assumed he could never receive his sight. Um, as an old man, he was going down the stairs, and he fell, and he actually broke a bunch of bones in his face. And he went to the doctor, and as they were kind of fixing him up and stuff, they, they realized they could heal him. <laughs> and so they did. They did a surgery, and at 68 years old, having never seen, he could see. And there, he's interviewed, he's, you know, talked to online. You can watch the video. And, you know, he's just marveling at the flowers and the colors and all the things that he can see. But he, he said this interesting thing. He says, you know, now that I can see, it's actually kind of difficult at first, you have to retrain yourself because you're used to operating without your eyes. You're used to identifying things by your hands. And so even though he could see things, it took him a while to be able to identify things by his sight. He'd, still, he'd see something and be like, what is that? And then he'd pick it up and say, oh, I know what that is. 
And you have to kind of do that a lot until, and I don't know how he's doing now. I mean, that was three years ago, but he talked about how difficult it is. It, the, the, the hands were his normal way of functioning. And so I think it's probably true. I mean, as I read this story, I don't, I've never really thought about it before. I just thought, hey, he can see and he's fine. But I'm sure this man also had to, to relearn how to use his eyes, right? How to function as a man who can see. So my last point this morning is the essential significance of the healing of the man born blind. So what's the significance of this story? Why is it here? It's not just about a man who received his eyesight. It's a sign. And as I said in verse 5 and 6, Jesus connects this healing, the healing of this man's physical eyes, with his identity as the light of the world and with his true mission as the one who brings light into the world. The miracle serves to illustrate the greater spiritual reality that Jesus is the one who gives sight to the spiritually blind and light to those who are in darkness, right? That's what John wants us to see. A blind man is in darkness. He has no light. He can't see. He doesn't know what's there. He doesn't know what's in the room. He doesn't know reality. So he kind of has to feel around, stumble around, grope around. He gets things wrong. He kind of, he can fall and hurt himself, especially if his surroundings are dangerous. And spiritually, that is the condition of the world without Christ, without light, without reality. Augustine was right when he commented on this story 1,600 years ago, and he said, that blind man is the human race. Every man is born mentally blind, for if he sees, he has no need of a guide. If he, does not, if he does need one to guide and enlighten him, then he is blind from birth. Now, how many know that we need a guide, right? We need light. We need guidance. We are blind from birth. The human race is in darkness because through sin and rebellion and unbelief, we become estranged from God as a race as a people, and we are born disconnected from God. We are born blind. If left to ourselves, a person does not know reality, right? You just, let's just, you know, let's not try it with Eusebia, right? We just won't instruct her and see how she turns out. The human race is blind in darkness. The human race does not know God despite their claim to, right? The human race not only doesn't know God, the human race doesn't even know itself. People who are without Christ don't even know who they are. They're in unreality about themselves. They're in unreality about what they're supposed to do, where they're supposed to go, where things are going. They don't know the truth. They don't know what's real. They're stumbling and groping around, and if they don't have light, they will fall and perish. That's the teaching of the Bible and the teaching of Jesus. The main point of the Gospel of John, brothers and sisters, from the prologue to Jesus when he stands before Pilate, 
to that Easter morning when more than the physical sun rises, the main point is that Jesus is the light of the world. And he is the word of the Father who comes into the world to reveal to us reality, the truth about God and about ourselves and about salvation. As we sing in one of a, fa- a famous Christian song about Jesus, you came from heaven to earth to show the way. And he reveals the truth about God, about man, and about salvation. First about God. Jesus reveals to us God is a God of total and complete and absolute and inflexible purity, holiness, and righteousness. Jesus comes into his religious Israelite culture, these people that claim to know God, and he says, you don't know God. You don't know who he is. You don't know his righteousness. You don't know his standards. You don't know his requirements. You don't know his law. You don't know his word. And he taught them, you know, this law that you boast in, you think you're a guide to the blind. Paul says this in Romans 2, right? You think you're a guide to the blind. You're the one who instructs. Well, Jesus teaches them, you don't know the law. The law requires nothing less than moral perfection. It's not try. God doesn't require you to try. We heard that the other day, didn't we, Tom? From the missionaries. Those female missionaries were telling, you know, we don't have to be perfect because we were saying that, right? They said we don't have to be perfect. God knows our heart. All we have to do is try. Just desire to do good. He sees that we want to do good. He sees our efforts. He sees our trying. He accepts us on that basis. It's not only the Mormons who say that, right? Even the atheists say that. If there is a God, when I die, and there happens to be one, I'll be okay because I'm better than others. Right? I don't have to be perfect. I'm just trying my best. That's all that matters, right? That's what the Muslims say. That's what the Jews said in Jesus' day and today. No, God's law, Jesus teaches us, doesn't say, as long as you're trying, it does not say, as long as you're avoiding the big sins. Just avoid the big sins. God will accept you. What did Jesus teach? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your might, all of your mind all of your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And let me show you what that looks like, right? You must love God perfectly and your neighbor perfectly. And Jesus taught this. You must lack nothing in fulfilling your duty. True? Are you allowed to lack anything in your duty to love God and man and be okay with God and his righteous standards? Jesus says no. So he taught about God and his perfect righteousness and purity. Jesus taught about man. There is not one person who is righteous. Did not Moses give you the law and none of you keep it? The world hates me because I testify of it that its works are evil. All are guilty, all are evil, all are perishing. And Jesus was hated for that very reason. The irony is, is those who claim to love God and know God hated the one who came and said, let me tell you who God really is. And they hated him because of the truth and the light that he brought. God is righteous and you are not. Have you learned that lesson? 
And thirdly, Jesus taught the way of salvation is one way, through faith in him. And this is his repeated teaching throughout the Gospel of John. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. John 3.16. John 5.24. God's will is that whoever sees the Son and believes in the one who sent him has eternal life and he will not perish, but he has passed from death to life. He will not come into judgment. How? What? That's good news. How? Whoever believes, he says. John chapter 6. Whoever believes in me has eternal life. I am the bread of life. How is it that whoever believes, this is a radical thing for him to say in Israel, isn't it? In a context in which the teaching is, no, you don't believe in order to be saved. You obey the commandments and the laws in order to be saved. And how is it that just through believing in Jesus, we're saved? And this is what we proclaim in the 21st century today. You're saved by believing in Jesus. Why? Because Jesus came into the world to give his flesh for the life of the world. This is the wonder of the gospel, the mystery of the Son of God. Jesus Christ came to die. And please put your name in the blank. He came to die for your sins. You're not a good person. I am not a good person. And every single day we show that we are those who fall short of the, of the glory of God and the standards of God. How many of you love your neighbor as you love yourself? If we get what we deserve, friends, it's God's punishment, his eternal destruction. But the gospel tells us that Christ came to die for us and on the cross, he substituted himself in our place. He took your sins, he took my sins, he took the sins of the world, and he paid the penalty for them. All we like sheep have gone astray, and the Father laid upon him the iniquity of us all, so that whoever looks to him and believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Not because God overlooks your sins or winks at your sins or says, you know, I think you're really not such a bad person, but because your sins have actually been taken care of through the sacrifice of Jesus. Greatest message in the world. Amen. Through faith we're forgiven of our sins, they're taken away, and our unrighteousness is replaced by righteousness. And here's the wonder of it all. It is not through works that any, so that no one can boast. It is simply through faith that you receive all these benefits in Jesus. The person who believes in Christ and his teaching is no longer in darkness, true? Isn't that what Jesus taught? If you believe in him... You're no longer in unreality. You have the light of life. Every Christian knows the truth. You now know God. You know what he's like. You know his standards. You know yourself. You freely admit you're, you're an unrighteous person in and of yourself. You're not under delusions about that. You've confessed and agreed with God. And you know the way of salvation and you have salvation. You know where you're going. You're not stumbling around anymore wondering what's going to happen. You're in the light because you believe in the truth. That's it. Have you ever heard the saying, seeing is believing? That's not true, actually. First of all, if you saw, then you don't need to believe, because to believe is to, is to be convinced of something that you don't see. Seeing is not believing, but neither is believing seeing, or at least simply believing is seeing, because people believe lies, and they're not seeing either, right? 
Believing the truth is seeing, according to Jesus. When you believe the truth, now you know. Now you're in reality. Now you are not in darkness, groping around anymore. So what's the point of this healing? What is this sign? It is simply to show us that Jesus is the one who opens our eyes and shows us reality and gives us light and gives us life. Every Christian has washed in the pool of Siloam. The pool of Siloam or the pool of scent. Siloam means scent. And we've seen this over and over in the Gospel of John. Jesus is the one who repeatedly is said to be the one who is sent by God. And it's no coincidence that Jesus is constantly saying, the Father sent me, the Father sent me, the Father sent me. And now John is pointing out, you know this pool that he told them to go wash in? It's called sent. In other words, this pool represents Jesus. And this is an illustration or a sign that in order to receive your sight and to remove the obstruction and receive light, you've got to go to Jesus to receive that. Every Christian has washed in the pool of Siloam. This, is the sto- this actually is a story of every Christian. I was blind. I didn't see. I didn't know what I was doing. And now I see because of Jesus. One of the worst conditions a person can be in, and I'll just say this in closing, is being blind and not realizing that you're blind. That's the worst condition that a person can be in. You're actually in darkness and you think you're in light and so you're striding around like you're in light. You're going to hurt yourself, especially if, you're, if your environment is a dangerous one. And according to the Bible, the human race's environment is a dangerous one because we're sinners and we're in danger of perishing. So it's a very dangerous and horrible condition to be blind and not realize you are. Now if you're blind and you know you're blind, then like this man, you start begging right? I'm blind and I know I'm blind. I'm going to sit right here and just call out to people for help and live off of people's charity. That's exactly what needs to happen for you to become a Christian. I, am, I have no idea what I'm doing. Help me, God, right? I'm living off your charity. And Jesus passes by and comes along and says, let me give you light and the riches of my salvation. At the end of this chapter, the Pharisees actually pick up that Jesus is um, using this blind man's healing as a lesson, as a spiritual lesson. And they say, we're not blind, are we? So they realize he's talking spiritually. They scoff. They don't think they're beggars. They think they're guides. Sadly, that's the case of so many people in this world. They don't beg. They're too proud to beg, as that song says, right? And they'll perish. So there's only two kinds of people in this world. There's the spiritual beggars who receive their sight and the riches of Christ through Jesus' grace. Or there's those who are too proud to beg and they have neither sight nor riches and they delude themselves thinking they have both. Like in Revelation, you don't even realize you're wretched, naked, poor, blind. Our prayer as the church is that people who are blind will realize their blindness and their bankruptcy, 
They'll go wash in the pool of Siloam. As Christians, we need to point them there. You know, your blindness, you can be healed of it. There's light, there's truth, there's reality, and it's in Jesus, there's salvation. Go. And our prayer is also that we who are Christians will rejoice in the light that we have received because we have the light of life. It's easy as a Christian to get discouraged, isn't it? But when you realize that you have been healed and you realize that you are in reality and you recognize what that reality is, then there's joy in seeing the works of God displayed in Christ. Amen? Through our blindness and through the healing that we've received through Christ, God is revealed and he is glorified. But I think like that man in Montreal, as Christians, you know, we get our sight and we can see, but we're still so used to living in darkness, right? We're so, we're so used to identifying objects and things and people in the old way. And we can see now and we get it. But we still have to retrain ourselves, as Paul said. You are the children of light. Now walk as the children of light, right? Learn to live by, ironically, by faith and not by sight, right? Learn to live by the sight that you've received through Christ and not just by the old messages that the world and the devil continually bombard us with. All glory goes to God. Amen? He is the one who gives us light. And in that light, we see his splendor, we see our unrighteousness, and we behold his saving grace. This is all about him and how beautiful he is and his amazing glory, who in his great loving kindness through Jesus Christ has given wicked, undeserving sinners light and life. Please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, as believers in your Son, we don't just read these words, I am the light of the world, and say, okay, but Lord, we can also agree and say, yes, Jesus is the light of the world, and we have, through faith in him, received our sight and received salvation and life in him. And we just praise you this morning for your Son, that you sent him into the world to be the one who gives truth. And we thank you for the death of your son, Lord. We thank you for loving us even in our unrighteousness and our sin. Lord, it's truly unspeakable. Please give us a fresh perspective of that, that we might just have full hearts to, to worship you and rejoice in you, Lord. We just thank you. We praise you. We love you for your son. We love you for the blood of Jesus that cleanses us and makes us completely spotless and acceptable before you. And Father, we also pray that those who do not yet see, Lord, that many in our families and our friends and people around us who don't see, Lord, that they would go and wash and that they would also see. Thank you for your wondrous works. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.